in the morning. When you want the news, you need the front page every hour on the press box. Nothing's writing on this except the uh, First Amendment, the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Not that any of that matters. And now, the news. The Dolphins are hiring Mike McDaniel as their head coach. McDaniel was the 49ers offensive coordinator. He spent most of his career with Kyle Shanahan, but now getting a chance to be an actual head coach, his own head coach. Uh, I say that like he's old. He's not even 40 yet. Uh, but McDaniel, new head coach of the Dolphins. Let me ask you from a Tua perspective. You think Tua should be excited about this hire? I'll try to get this one in fast. Uh, the Tua situation is one that should make Tua scared. He should not be excited. He should be terrified because Mike McDaniel is a smart enough offensive coach to come in and say, oh, I don't know if this guy's going to be able to get it done. <laughs> like, I can imagine he had to go into the interview and tell Stephen Ross exactly what he wanted to hear, which is, I can fix Tua, no problem. I imagine Mike McDaniel really gets in there and is like, dude, let me just survive this until I can get another quarterback. That's an interesting uh, reason, I guess, maybe not reason, but that's an interesting way to take a job, though, right? Like, I would like to think if you're taking, especially a first-time uh, head coaching position, that you want to feel really comfortable about the quarterback spot. And the idea that he might go in there and try to survive Tua for a year or still on his rookie contract, it might be more than a year. I don't know. It seems like not that you're maybe turning down a head coaching spot, but not the ideal place to land if you're McDaniel and if you're not sold on the quarterback. No, and I think I'm obviously exaggerating a bit, but I think what you want to do in the end is you want to make Tua a functional quarterback the same way Mike McDaniel and Kyle Shanahan were able to make Jimmy Garoppolo a functional quarterback, right? Like, that's pretty much it. The problems with Tua go back to his inability to complete anything beyond 10 yards down the field. Like, the mobility's not there the same way that it was before the hip injury. And he basically was reduced to being a short yardage passer in part because the Dolphins' offensive line is horrendous. I mean, it looks like the, you know, like the Raiders have the old Washington Hogs compared to what's going on down in Miami. <laughs> so that's the challenge for Mike McDaniel. Make Tua look functional. Make this offense be functional. But you can pretty much say Tua Tagovailoa is not going to be an elite NFL quarterback, which is obvious. Next question. The Texans may hire Lovey Smith as their head coach. Ian Rappaport actually just tweeted the Texans are moving towards naming Lovey Smith their head coach for 2022. No deal is done, but it's headed that way. Um, Lovey Smith was the defensive coordinator for the Texans this past season. Uh, this search at one point, it looked like it might actually be Josh McCown, but yesterday Josh McCown was reportedly out of the running. Did the Texans find out their job simply wasn't as desirable as they thought it was? Yeah. Did they need someone to tell them that? <laughs> what would be the reason to go to that clown show that they have going on in Houston? Cal McNair, Jack Easterby, Nick Casario are running. I'm not, I, you know why I paused, Tyler? I wanted to say the worst organization in the NFL, and then I remember that Jacksonville exists and that Chad Khan and Trent Baalke are probably doing just <laughs> as bad of a job in Jacksonville. But it's one of the worst organizations in the entire league. Their candidates have been Josh McCown, and now Lovey Smith, apparently, because everyone was super impressed by what he did at Illinois. Uh, and <laughs> Brian Flores. 
It's, and so I hope for the sake of Brian Flores that he gets the job. I doubt it. But I also think that this organization deserves everything it gets if it decides to go with someone like Lovey Smith, who is retread in the NFL as much as any other coach. It is. Is there anything that you would want if you were head coach about the Houston Texans? Like you can, like you mentioned Jacksonville and, and what the owner GM are doing there, but it, at least you get Trevor Lawrence, right? Like I think every job that came open, you could find something and say, well, at least I got that. What is it in Houston? Like Davis Mills? I'm not sure there is a single <laughs> player in Houston right now that you feel like is going to be on the roster three years from today. Period. What about Rex Burkhead's like 150 yards against the Chargers in week 16? You don't think that'll translate to three years down the road? As someone who might or might not have wagered on the Chargers in that game, that is still a very painful memory to think about. <laughs> Great question. The San Francisco Dons basketball team played Portland uh, over the weekend and did something they've done a few times before, but that I absolutely love. They fouled Portland while leading by two with six seconds to play. Todd Golden is the head coach of San Francisco. He is hands down my favorite coach in college basketball. The reason behind this, the reason why you foul when winning by two points and six seconds left is simply it's math to tell you the answer. But Portland was in the single bonus, so it's a one-and-one situation, meaning Portland is not guaranteed to even shoot two free throws after you foul them. They're guaranteed one, and if they make it, they get another shot. But the expected points, it's very, I shouldn't say unlikely, but it's... 50-50 or so, depending on which guy you foul, that they're actually going to make both free throws. And even if they do, you still get the ball with a chance to win. And all of that eliminates the possibility that your opponent hits a game-winning three to beat you. Basically, the, the idea here is that worst-case scenario, and yes, you can give up an offensive rebound, but that's very rare to give up an offensive rebound in a basket that quickly. But the worst case scenario is that they make both free throws and you have a chance to win the game on the final possession. In reality, what happened? Portland made one of two free throws. San Francisco got the ball, got fouled, and they put the game away at the free throw line. I love Todd Golden, and I love that he's going to, he's done this before, but that he's willing to do things like this where they find the small edges and things that would go against everything anybody else watching basketball would think, fouling while winning in the final six seconds. I love it so much. All right, this is going to become a nerd argument, so if you're someone who used to flush people's heads down the toilet in high school, just tune out for like the next 60 seconds or so, okay? Uh, I have questions about this. First of all, it is massively, massively dependent on who you foul. Yes. Um, and you need to make sure that that is clear in the strategy in the huddle before you get there. Now, also, basketball as opposed to sports like football there is another major, major consideration here, and that is that the look of your team based on foul trouble might be a different look than it was in the first quarter, right? So in football, you get the same team you went into the game with, barring injury. But in basketball, I also need to factor in things like, did my best player already foul out? Did their best player already foul out? Because that determines partially for me how much longer I want to extend this game. Am I a huge underdog and I want to try to extend this game for five more minutes? 
or am I, and excuse me, I want to end this game right now, or am I a huge favorite and maybe I want to extend this game five more minutes because I know if you give me five more minutes of time, I'm going to win. So I think on a very general sense that your numbers make sense, I think when it comes down to specific situations, you really have to be willing to look very hard at what you have in front of you. And that is so, you know, we played San Francisco earlier this year. We had Todd Golden on the show, my favorite interview I've ever done. That is amazingly pretty much everything you said. Uh, they factor it in and like how good is the free throw shooter that's one of the number one things they look at is hey when we foul this guy is it a guy that shoots 80 percent, or is it a guy that's shooting like 50 percent? i know the example from a couple years ago they found a guy that was shooting like 35 percent, which is sounds like a no-brainer that you should foul that guy maybe on every single possession of the game and you're gonna win but that all kind of goes into it and to your point of being a favorite or not a favorite they were pretty big favorites in this game. Like it, it was a game that shouldn't have come down to the final seconds anyways. So the idea of being a favorite and Hey, can you win over the next five minutes? San Francisco probably felt pretty good about it. Now, if they were doing this against Gonzaga, I think your point's probably true. Maybe you say, all right, we got a chance. If we, if they just miss a shot, we beat Gonzaga as opposed to having to beat them for another five minutes. Yeah. Uh, 100% because it gets into the situation where we talk about when do you go for two in the NFL, right? If you have the chance, if you are a huge underdog and you have the chance to win the game on one play from the one yard line down by, you know, down by a point after a touchdown with two seconds to go, you absolutely take the one play from the two yard line and say that we can win the game based on that's why Dan Campbell is a hero to many because Dan Campbell was willing to do that consistently. Uh, and John Harbaugh should be a hero, too, because he did the same thing. But when it comes down to all of these discussions, here's. What I'm going to ask people, and Tyler, what I think you would ask people as well. Stop using confirmation to decide whether it was a good decision or not. It was a good choice based on the numbers beforehand. Then it doesn't matter what the outcome was. I agree with Todd Golden's situation for the most part. That math actually makes a lot of sense to me about why I'd love to see more teams foul up to. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. The Lakers beat the Knicks 122-115 in overtime on Saturday. Maybe most interesting. Frank Vogel benched Russell Westbrook for overtime. Westbrook had five points on one of ten shooting. Can the Lakers simply just get better as a basketball team if Russell Westbrook stops playing? Yes. <laughs> there you go. Well, now, I, <laughs> Look, I don't know what's wrong with Russell Westbrook as part of the Lakers system, but it doesn't work. It does not work. This is not one of those things where I watch the game and I think to myself, well, they just need to find a way to fit him in. You don't fit Russell Westbrook in. Either you are built around Russell Westbrook or you're not. And this team can't. It shouldn't. You have LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Why would you consider making Russell Westbrook a focal point? So the best thing you could do, Tyler, in my opinion, is make him the sixth man of the year at this point. I don't think he can trade Russell Westbrook for anything representative, but I all do think that if you wanted to say, Russ, you're our second unit guy when we sit LeBron and AD, come in, take the ball, and just do things. But to try to play him with this first team makes no sense anymore. We've seen it. It does not work. The Lakers are ninth in the conference, and that's not just because Anthony Davis was hurt, because Anthony Davis is back, LeBron is back. Congrats to the Lakers for ruining my Saturday by coming from behind from 20 points down. They were the Knicks were up 20 when I got on a plane. I made the mistake of flying Frontier, which had no Wi-Fi. 
And so then by the time I landed, they'd lost the game. And I thought, what the hell happened here? And what happened was Frank Vogel got smart and benched Russ. My favorite part. So I don't, you might not have seen this if you were on a plane. My favorite part is late in the fourth quarter. Russell Westbrook caught a pass in the corner, wide open, completely wide open. The crowd was yelling at him, no, to not shoot. So he double clutched, ended up shooting anyways, and missed it. It was phenomenal. Well, they were doing that because he had already done another of his clanging off the side <laughs> of the backboard shots earlier in the game. Kalong told me a couple days ago, I, you got to get rid of this echo. <laughs> can't talk. I'm drunk. Whatever. <laughs> All right, Adam, we need your help with this. Our resident referee in a game over the weekend, the Hornets and Cavaliers. The Hornets were given a made three-pointer and a technical free throw on a shot that happened during a dead ball. So to try to succinctly wrap this up, there was a rebound. The ball hit a Cavalier while he was standing out of bounds. So one ref blows the play dead. Out of bounds on Cleveland. It'll be the Hornets' ball. After the whistle is blown, though, uh, Plumlee made a pass to Terry Rozier, and like a lot of NBA players, he shot the ball, even though it's after the whistle. It happens all the time in the NBA. But as Rozier was taking this shot, uh, Ed Davis, who was on the Cavs bench, jumped up and tried to poke the ball out of his hands. A different referee, not the one who called the ball out of bounds, but a different ref came in, gave Ed Davis a technical foul, and counted the three-pointer that was taken after the whistle. Adam, how, how do we explain this? I got to be honest with you, Tyler. When I first saw this play happen, I had to watch it like four or five times to understand <laughs> what the officials did. And I still don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> so here's what happened. Like, long and short, here's what happened. The official who counted the three never heard the whistle from the official on the baseline who had blown the play dead. And so I don't understand how they went back and said, sure count the shot because what happened was the <laughs> ball was already dead when it when the ball was out on the baseline it's dead it's not like a play where you know a foul happened while the ball was in the air and yes you still count the shot no that wasn't this at all this was a referee not hearing the whistle of the other referee ending up with two different calls which is fine it happens on the court look i i i once I once called a foul on a rebound on a ball that I couldn't see the ball and it was already out of bounds. It was one of the most embarrassing plays I ever had. It was when I first started refereeing college basketball, but we fixed it. It was easy. We talked. We fixed it. How did this not get fixed? <laughs> and they did talk too. Like the referees got together and talked. And I, I, that's what I didn't understand is how the referee who called it out of bounds didn't say, no, man, I, I blew the whistle. It was out of bounds. Everything from that point was dead. It is... Bizarre, and they and it counted. They got four points when they should have had, you know, a baseline inbounds. Instead, the Cavaliers ended up winning the game, anyways, so it didn't affect the actual win-loss result there. But it's one of the most bizarre, most hilariously missed calls that I think we've ever seen. Coming up next, we'll stick with the NBA. Can the 76ers get James Harden before the trade deadline? You're sitting in the press box with Grainy and Bishop. On ESPN Las Vegas, follow them on Twitter at Ed Graney and Bischoff underscore Tyler featuring Adam Candy. Coming up in uh, 20 minutes, we have tickets to go see John Mayer. So if you want tickets to John Mayer, stay tuned. 20 minutes away. We'll give those away. You just heard Steve Nash there when asked about trading James Harden. 
Uh, Nash about as blunt as you could be, saying no, they're not going to trade that. That comes off the heels of a Sham Charnier report over the weekend that said the 76ers were trying to acquire Harden. Uh, the 76ers are expected to pursue Harden in the coming days, and the Nets are believed to be open to discussing a deal. The trade deadline is February 10th. Uh, there have been conversations about Harden possibly getting traded before, but almost always it was pushed back to a, hey, this will be an off-season situation. Uh, Harden has a player option, so potentially the Nets could sign and trade him even if he declines that in season to get something back. If it was the Sixers, be centered around Ben Simmons here. So, Adam, first from the Nets' perspective, does it make any sense to you for them to trade James Harden before the trade deadline? It makes all the sense in the world for them to trade James Harden before the deadline because what's become clear is this super team is not super or a team. They're just not at all. <laughs> Kyrie Irving made that decision for them from the jump. And if I'm James Harden, I can see the writing on the wall here. This team is never going to be what we thought it was going to be when James Harden forced his way out of Houston and ended up in Brooklyn with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. So... If you're the Nets, your motivation is that James Harden can opt out this summer and you lose him for absolutely nothing. And then this team is completely blown up because we have no idea what is going to happen for Kyrie Irving the rest of his career, frankly, at this point. And according to reporting from Adrian Wojnarowski and Ramona Shelburne of ESPN, quote, Harden's private grousing about coaches, teammates, and the organization has made its way through the league. Those who've worked with him in the past understand that's how it goes in troubled times with him. Almost anyone who spent time with Harden concedes he can be quick to blame others and seldom himself. If you've reached the point with James Harden that you did in Houston, now in Brooklyn, so do you expect you're going to find him making the trips to Vegas that he was when he was in Houston to come out to the clubs and hang out? No, probably not. But why would you hang on to him, Tyler? What would be the purpose at this point? If you believe you can win. Like, if you believe, hey, Kevin Durant healthy, James Harden good to go, half a series of Kyrie Irving. Like, if you believe that's enough to win a title, then you don't trade it because you, you think you can win a title with that. But uh, they've fallen back to sixth in the East. Like, they're not exactly going to have an easy path to get to the Eastern Conference Finals. Like, I don't know that this team is winning a title. So I think I agree with you in terms of trading him away right now and basically giving up on this big three of Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, and James Harden. On the Sixers side of this, uh, it's pretty much a no-brainer, uh, but how much do you think they'd have to give up? Like, Ben Simmons is the the what you're building this deal around because Ben Simmons is not playing for the 76ers, but, like, Tyrese Maxey has been their number two scorer, a, a phenomenal sort of breakout season in his second year in the NBA, like, is that something the Sixers should not want to give up? They should be fine giving up. Like, how much should they be willing to trade to get James Harden right now? Sixers have to accept their situation at this point. Ben Simmons is not coming back. And Ben Simmons, I am not here to judge the mental health portion of the program that we talk about with Ben Simmons. But it certainly feels like from everything we've heard, including the fact that he was DMing with Shaq, talking about how Shaq should stop criticizing him. It certainly seems like this is more fault on Ben Simmons' end than it is on the Sixers' end. Regardless, you got to solve it. And the Nets make a lot of sense, right? You have two guys who need the ball in their hands with Durant and Kyrie Irving, and a third with James Harden, and he might need the ball more than any of them. Well, Ben Simmons might be one of the better players in the NBA who does not need the ball. Frankly, you don't want him with the ball on the offensive end of the floor. So if you're the Sixers, 
you need to offer what you need to offer because if you're the Nets, what's your motivation to take less than you should from the Philadelphia 76ers? Why would you hand James Harden to one of your rivals in the conference if you believe you have any chance of competing this year? Because a team that is Durant and Kyrie Irving, partially, and something of James Harden, you're right. You said it before. They can win, but I also think both of these teams need to be realistic about their situations. James Harden is making the kind of noises that say, I'm leaving. Ben Simmons is already making the noises that say, I ain't playing. These two need to get together and figure out how to make it work for everybody. I would love to see the James Harden you described by reports from Ojnarowski and Rona Shelburne about uh, him being upset, making it unpleasant because he's upset. I want to see that guy with Joel Embiid because I'm pretty sure Joel Embiid would tweet through it. Like, I think we would know everything about James Harden if he was playing with Joel Embiid and felt upset. Um, it's it's fascinating. I I kind of want to see the trade happen just for the sake of it happening and it would mean Ben Simmons is playing like uh, that's fun. Like even if it's more or less us making fun of him for not shooting in the fourth quarter, it's still a fun part of the NBA. Like it's better to have Ben Simmons playing than him just never playing, not showing up, whatever the hell's happening in uh, Philadelphia. But the other part of this that's fascinating to me is Daryl Morey's stance this entire time where he's basically said, Hey, we're not trading Ben Simmons for role players. We are trying to trade him for a piece that can help us win a championship. Now he has, seemingly, or at least publicly, sort of backed off of that, where at one point he was saying, we need a top 20 player in return. And he recently said on the radio in Philly, eh, maybe a top 40 guy if he's the right fit. But if he were to land James Harden for Ben Simmons, like Daryl Morey would basically be proven right, be proven the winner of this entire situation, where, yeah, I didn't have to trade him right away. I held on to him, and look what I got. I got James Harden. Uh, You got less than half a season of James Harden guaranteed, which is part of the reason that you're able to get him. Um Back to your original point, though, about how Joel Embiid would tweet through it. Okay, I have a question for you. Do you know who ASAP Rocky is? Uh, no, the musician. Know the name. That's all I got for you. All right, you. that's a good start. That's a good start. Well, well, he is Rihanna's boyfriend. Oh. And Rihanna is now pregnant. Uh, we know Joel Embiid is probably pretty upset about the fact that Rihanna is off the market. Um, this might be exactly the time to get James Harden to Philadelphia because I think Joel is probably a little distracted in his feelings. I don't think, I don't think you have to worry about like if James goes a little ball dominant, like Joel's going to be like, yep, that's just the way these things go. Lost another one. Oh, that's a good insight. I, that is very good insight. And I hope Daryl Morey takes that into consideration. I hope there is a Rihanna chart somewhere in the 76ers front office to help them make these decisions at the exact right time. But coming up next, We're going to jump back into hockey as Ryan Wallace joins the show. We're back to the Press Box Morning Show with Ed Graney and Tyler Bischoff featuring Adam Candy. Joining us now is Ryan Wallace. You can hear him on the VGK Insider Show, also pre-post and intermission for Golden Knights games. Uh, Ryan, uh, let me ask you this question. Would you rather spend a weekend in Cabo or a weekend as an NHL All-Star? Ooh, um... Really good question. Uh, I'm I'm not good at hockey, so probably Cabo. Uh, but you know, if I'm if I'm Jonathan Marchessault, so who's very good at hockey, and uh, it was my first opportunity to go to an All Star game, uh, I'd, I'd rather go to the All Star game. Do you think that's part of the reason why he did leave his vacation in Cabo because it was his first All Star game? Like, if this had been his fifth or sixth or something, you think he says no and just hangs out in Cabo? 
Uh, I mean, I probably, uh, but I mean, like you're talking about a player that that it might not get another opportunity to be an all star, and, and that's not to diminish what Jonathan Marchessault can do. It's just it's you see on a year to year basis how hard it can be when you have to invite somebody from every team, even if there aren't players that should be at the all star game from every team. It, it becomes a little bit more of a, of a muddy track to get there. So. Um, for Marcia so to, to be able to have that on the resume, to be able to say that you were at, at one point in time an NHL All-Star and you were able to go to the game here in Vegas um, to in the building where you play your home games, I think I think it means a little bit more. It matters a little bit more. And, it, you know, it, it's important to some of these guys. Ryan, we're still about six weeks away from the NHL trade deadline. And I think the obvious answer to this question for the Golden Knights is Jack Eichel. But do you think there's anyone else who could come into Vegas at the trade deadline this year? Or are they just so screwed by the cap that there's no way of making something work? Yeah, I mean, there's conceivably a way. And, and you know, it, it all depends on how much salary they're, they're shedding when they do activate Jack Eichel. Because as it looks right now, the Golden Knights are relatively healthy. Alec Martinez is still out, but we'll kind of get an update this week on Martinez and when he might be available. So if Alec Martinez is back by the time Jack Eichel has has been cleared to play in a game, the Golden Knights are going to have to move some salary and they're going to have to do it in uh, various different ways. Now, if you end up moving more money um, than, than you need to to activate Jack Eichel, then that might signify that the Golden Knights are looking for another option at the trade deadline. I wouldn't put it past them uh, to give themselves a little bit of flexibility to be able to pull off a late trade deadline move. Um, but to me, I would rather have it just be Jack Eichel. Move the bare minimum amount of money that you need to to activate him and then really establish this as the team that you have moving forward, not worrying about the trade deadline too much. Well, that's not the Golden Knights way. They always got to go get something big. Uh, so let me ask you this. Obviously, they, they this... did, Tyler. It was Jack Eichel. That, that's old news. About? I know he hasn't played a game, but that is old news. They have had this guy for way too long. There's got to be a new shiny toy out there to go get. But let me ask it, ask it to you this way. Obviously, this could change depending on if they trade somebody, who they trade to make room for Jack Eichel. But if you were looking at the Golden Knights and it was, hey, the trade deadline's coming up, they're a contender, they need this type of player. They need to fix this hole or this flaw. Like, what would they be trying to acquire at the deadline? Um, I mean, that's a really, really good question because the, the holes that this team has are not super um, – I mean, they're there, but they're not, like, super detrimental. Every team, even Tampa Bay Lightning, they've got holes in their game. I think the Golden Knights' defense has been kind of the, the one area you look at this year and you say, I'd like it to be a little bit better. I'd like them to be able to defend better. I'd like a two- or three-goal lead to be an automatic victory and not one that the Golden Knights have to hold on for in the in the final stretch because they're just giving up too many good chances. So, you know, for me, I would like to see something solidify the defense, but at the same time, you're talking about a team that's played essentially the entire year without Alex Martinez. You get him back in the lineup, all of a sudden things start to, to fall into place a little bit more, and what you're looking for was internal. It just was injured. So um, I would look on, on the defensive side of the puck. I think up front they're deep enough, depending on who they have after Jack Eichel is activated. Um, but, I mean, if, if you know you get – Jack Eichel, and it costs you two or three forwards up front, 
then I think your your focus has to, has to shift to kind of replacing some of that, especially down the lineup. I have a theory for you, Ryan. Go for um, it. Let's go. Okay. All right. Let's do this. Uh, right now, if you search by, I, I used a pretty generous number, said 500 minutes of time on ice for for goalies, and. Mm-hmm. You know, Robin Leonard's numbers are not fantastic this year on the whole for the season. Now, you just mentioned he's had this rough defense in front of him. There is a team out there that is looking to trade a goaltender who we know has been successful in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Bring back Flurry. No. Why would you Why? do that? Why can't we bring back Flurry and make everybody happy? Uh, I mean, number one, and just, you know, I, I would imagine the Blackhawks would do this just out of spite, but. Um, they wouldn't retain salary. Um, they, like I think the Blackhawks would retain salary for any other team in the league, um, but I don't think that they would retain salary for the Vegas Golden Knights. So, and that might need, that might not be like a Chicago Blackhawk thing. That might be like an Alan Walsh and Mark Andre Fleury thing. Um, so you're you're looking to add seven million dollars to the cap, which I, I don't understand how you'd be able to do. And would you keep Robin Leonard on, or you would you would move Robin Leonard? Like how would that work in your mind? No, no, no. The Golden Knights are the ones who always figure out how to do the weird salary things. That's not my job. My <laughs> well, job is to make I can, everybody happy. I can tell happy. you right now, there's no way this team with Jack Eichel can go into the into the off or into the playoffs with twelve million dollars in goaltending, especially to bring back a guy that's on an expiring contract. Just uh, keep Eichel, uh, keep Eichel on long term reserve till the playoffs are here. We're good. So, so your so your solution, legitimately your solution. Uh, given the fact that Robin Leonard over the last four games has been like a 957 goalie and it is turning the corner, uh, your solution to the Golden Knights breaking through in the playoffs is to go to a goalie tandem that didn't work last year and then to have a guy that's making $10 million, $10 million who you brought in to be the game changer on, on offense and the game changer on the power play. You want him to sit out until the playoffs to play his first game with a new organization and his first ever playoff game in the NHL, that's not a recipe for success, guys. Come on. Nobody's ever tried it before, so how do you know? No one's ever tried it before because they know it's not going to work, Tyler. Come on. Let's be real here. All right, let me ask you this. Could the Golden Knights win the Pacific Division with a hungover Pete DeBoer for every day of the rest of the season? (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) Um, It it wasn't just Pete, so (laughs) that might have led to... Some of the poor play from the Pacific Division wasn't just Pete. That's a that's a groundbreaking story here. By the way, should Jonathan Marshall get to play in overtime after giving up a goal like ten seconds in? Um, no. I, I mean, maybe, but maybe not start in overtime. You know, maybe not start the game there. Um, and like those those legacy lines really didn't work out for the Buffalo Sabers or the Pacific oh, Division. That was that was a bad look. That was fun. That's one of the funniest goals we've had is Alex Tuck, Cody Eakin, and Peyton Krabs giving up a goal on the first shift of the game. Okay, hold on. Skills competition question for you. Mm-hmm. How did Trevor Zegers keep the puck on his stick? I, I don't know. Was it, I mean, like, was he I, cheating? I understand. No, no, no. It, like, it's, it's physics of something or something. And, and like, I, you know, there, there are very rudimentary things that I can do where you can keep the puck on your blade and it doesn't make sense that you should be able to do that. Uh, Trevor Zegers is a magician. I don't understand it. I've looked at it. I've watched it maybe a thousand times, and that's not an exaggeration. <laughs> and I still don't understand how he was able to pull that move off. It is the singular 
most talented thing, most ridiculous thing I've ever seen a player do with with a stick on his blade. It, it was fantastic. And he didn't even win. Well, yeah, he did, but he didn't. No, sh- shut up! I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I, I don't like. He he won. In my mind, I never heard anybody announced as the winner of the Breakaway Challenge. That's how I'm going to remember it. Uh, do you know who John Hamm is? Because I don't. Yeah, I mean he's an actor. Okay. He's a big St. Louis Blues fan. All right. Know that. You know more than me. Why did, did Oh, is that why? Does he like Petrangelo because he's a Blues yes, fan? Yes, that was the whole concept, Tyler. Oh, I, well, he oh my play, gosh. He doesn't play for the Blues anymore. <laughs> what, but what? he won a Stanley Cup for the Blues, Tyler. So all the fans that liked the Blues really liked Petrangelo because he was the captain of a cup-winning team. That's how these things work, buddy. No, he left him. He ditched him. He could have Take could... the L, Tyler. Yeah, Just whatever. take the L. Whatever. Get out of here, Ryan. Thank you. Bye, guys. This is Ryan Wallace. VGK Insider Show. Listen, I can't, you can't still be nice to him if you're a Blues fan. It's ridiculous. He left you. He ditched you. You should be upset. All right. They got Tory Krug. They're fine. Whatever. We've got John Mayer tickets to give away. John Mayer coming to Las Vegas Friday, March 11th at MGM Grand Garden. And we got a pair of tickets for you right now. 702-364-1100. We'll take caller number nine at 702-364-1100. You'll want a pair of tickets to go see John Mayer. It's the Press Box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. Adam Candy in. For Ed Graney, who is out at the Super Bowl. Uh, Adam Candy, a New York Knicks fan. Uh, Would you like to walk us through this uh, video that was tweeted out of Julius Randle arguing or getting mad at the uh, Knicks video coordinator? So this has emerged here in the last day or so where one of the video people for the Knicks has a laptop Outside the timeout huddle, Julius Randle's not in the game. He's trying to show Julius Randle something on the laptop. Julius, walking back into the huddle, just kind of bats the laptop away, and I'm good. The video assistant then decides to continue the conversation. And I don't know exactly what that conversation was, but Julius Randle didn't enjoy that and decided to <laughs> face up to the video assistant, and then uh, then they had to be separated. And if you want to know why the Knicks are 24 and 29, I don't think that's the reason, but, you know, certainly fits. I love so much in this Julius Randle, like, walking, getting in the face of the video coordinator. I'd love to know what the video coordinator said here. I'd also love to know, like, is there a history here that we know of? Like, why is Julius Randle so mad at the video coordinator for trying to show him something during the game? Well... All right, let's, there's no history that I know of, but let's think about it this way. The Knicks were in the process of blowing a 20-point lead to the Lakers. Julius Randle, in 41 minutes against the Lakers, had 32 points, 16 rebounds, 7 assists, and 2 blocks. Safe to say that whatever was going on was not Julius Randle's problem. And I would be frustrated right now, too, if I were part of this New York Knicks team. Because, no, they were not going to be one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference but they definitely should be much, much better than they are. I didn't like the Evan Fournier signing. I thought Kemba Walker was a great signing on a discount. And if you look at the starting five that the Knicks have put together for most of this season, it is by net rating the worst five-man lineup in the NBA, (laughs) period. And so I'd be pretty frustrated if I were Julius Randle, too. How, 
How you feeling here? I mean, you got a playoff series last year. You got one playoff win last year, but Trey Young kind of sunk all that. Now all of a sudden, uh, the Knicks might not even make the play-in round of the playoffs. Like, were you were you just happy to get there last year and and thought it might all fall down, or is this like a complete disaster for the Knicks? No, remember what I told you last year. I just wanted to feel something again, and I did. I, I got to I got to feel the idea that maybe we can be exciting or interesting. Now I'm settling back into the other life state that I'm very used to. Knicks in the lottery. And so I've already kind of adjusted myself to the idea of, all right, well, yeah, maybe they get to the play-in round and get smacked around by Brooklyn. Uh, or we're in the lottery. And then I, that gets me to start watching college basketball closer and start thinking about prospects. Like, I'm all about February being the precursor to June. <laughs> okay. Another team in the East, this one that's actually playing well. The Cavaliers, they traded for Karis LeVert. They sent Indiana a first-round pick and two second-round picks. Uh, for Karis LeVert and Ricky Rubio's expiring contract. Karis LeVert's averaging 18 points per game. But the Cavaliers here, top four in the Eastern Conference. First off, how many minutes of Cavalier basketball have you watched this year? I've watched a game. Okay. that's I Listen, that's more than me, and I think that's more than most people, uh, even okay. a lot of people that are probably basketball fans. Like, the thing that gets me is, like, I had, haven't watched them play. But their net rating is very, very good this year. They have been top in the East or second in the East for the last, like, two months here. Very good net rating overall. Like, unlike the Chicago Bulls, who have a terrible defensive rating, the Cavs seem pretty solid on both ends of the floor. But, like, you kind of look at it and you're like, all right, Darius Garland, uh, Jarrett Allen, Evan Mobley. Like, the names, you look at it and you're like, yeah, that, that doesn't sound like a good team. But, like, what do we do with the Cavaliers and what should the Cavaliers be doing? Because they trade for Karis LeVert and it's not really a massive deal, but it is giving up some future assets for somebody that helps them win now and next season. Like it's, it's a very interesting place for a franchise to be when you're presumably way ahead of schedule. So I think you have to give them the benefit of the doubt because of what they've been able to do here, right? Uh, all right, let's go through the names you just mentioned. You probably should know who Jared Allen is at this point. Uh, Jared Allen was the Cavaliers reward for getting involved in the James Harden trade, right? Jared Allen comes over from Brooklyn and ends up becoming a guy who is going 16 and 11 for them this year. Okay. So give them credit for that. Every year. When I look at the NBA all-star team, there's always one guy where I'm like, wait a second. He's an all-star. That's Darius Garland for me this year, 20 points and eight assists a game in his second season in the NBA. And Evan Mobley, is the odds-on favorite to be Rookie of the Year, which we shouldn't be terribly surprised by because of the kind of player that he showed he could be at USC. He was just starting to kind of come into himself, and they already had Colin Sexton as a guy they could build around. So I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that they can look at their roster and say, yeah, you know what? The East is wide open this year. Why shouldn't we take a shot on Karis LeVert and make a run? Because that first-round pick, they might have expected early on that that first-round pick was going to be in the, <laughs> what, maybe in the teens? That first round pick is going to be down the 20s this year. It doesn't have as much value. By the way, my favorite part of that trade is that they put lottery protected in there while they're sitting in fourth in the East. Like, I guess it's entirely possible the season falls apart and they fall into the lottery. But like the Cavaliers aren't going to be in the lottery this year, but they had to put that safeguard in just in case the season completely fell apart. Yeah, but keep remember that we were talking about earlier there are. <laughs> 
Nine losses separate first from 12th in the Eastern Conference right now. It wouldn't take more than an injury for that to happen to Cleveland. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating team. The Eastern Conference is fascinating as a whole simply because, again, Chicago's in first right now. Or Miami's in first and Chicago's in second right now. The Cavaliers are in fourth. We kind of look at it and it's been, ah, the Brooklyn Nets should be good even though they haven't really had everybody playing. Uh, the defending champions and Milwaukee should be right there as well. Even we'd think the 76ers just because of Joel Embiid would be ahead of a lot of these teams, but what what are the chances we get uh, Eastern Conference Finals with no Nets or Sixers? Oh, high, considering okay. the how good the Bulls and the Heat are this year, but I think it, the key to the Eastern Conference is this, and I, I was hoping John Von Tobel would say it earlier, but I'll say it. Any of these teams playing the way they are right now are going to get destroyed in the finals. <laughs> Absolutely wrecked by Golden State or Phoenix, or frankly by Memphis the way that they're going right now. But Golden State and Phoenix are so clearly the two best teams in the NBA that I think you have to take multiple steps down to get to the next tier. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to see those two potentially separating themselves so much. And I'm curious how much that changes before we actually get to the postseason. Like, can Milwaukee put together a good end of the season where we're like, oh yeah, they're they're definitely in that top tier? Or does Memphis continue playing like that too. So that's what I'm curious to see if those two are clearly far and away the two best teams in the NBA once we get to the playoffs.